So we're in a series called What About? And we're just asking, as so many of us have been through faith shifts over the years and, and are undergoing them right now, and um, our faith that used to be maybe settled and sure no longer feels so settled and sure. Um, and we know maybe a little bit about what we don't believe anymore or what we don't think or what no longer works for us, but then the problem becomes what, what does work for us. And, and then there are all, all these things maybe as we're reworking our faith and what we think and feel and believe and all of that that we just don't know what to do with. And so it's the stuff that we would maybe hear about and go, yeah, 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 but what about? And so we're talking about the whatabouts. I want to remind you that on Palm Sunday, which is April 10th, we're going to do a live, the sermon time will be a live question response time. Um, And so we'll be taking questions from this room. We'll be taking questions from YouTube as our online community gathers. Um, We'll sort of do a one-for-one, one one from in the room, one from YouTube. And really, my my hope is that when I finish these teachings, sermons, rants each week, my, my hope is that you don't go, ah, so that's what about. My hope is you go, okay, yeah, but what about? <laughs> what about the what about, right? Um, and I've already gotten some great emails where people are like, you raised some things, but you didn't speak to them. Yeah, yeah, because we have more whatabouts, right? We have way more whatabouts uh, to get to. So I'm looking forward to that. Today I want to talk about this question, and it's a question I think for me as a pastor, as I went through my own faith shift, my own deconstruction, whatever language you want to use over the years, one of the big problems for me came... To down to this topic. What about the death of Jesus? Because I could find my way around a lot of things, but I realized that at church on Sundays, a lot of times people expected me to say certain things about the death of Jesus, things which I really didn't think I believed anymore, things that I couldn't, didn't make sense to me anymore, but people were expecting them. And so I can remember as a pastor for like 10 years, just when Easter would start to roll around and you had the whole Good Friday resurrection bit, just feeling like, can I not get the stomach bug on Easter weekend, can I not somehow get out of this because I just don't know what I want to say about it. I don't know what I think it means. I don't know what to do with it. Um, and so, I, I don't, anybody else had that trouble with the death of Jesus? Like, it's one of those things that scholars across the board say a couple things. One, Jesus exist, existed. Two, Jesus was crucified by the Romans. But what does that mean? And what do we do with it? That's what I want to get to today. And we, ha- we have to do something with it. And the reason we have to do something with it is because it is pretty central to the Christian tradition. Since the early layers of the tradition, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, specifically the cross of Jesus, has played a pretty central role in not only the development of theology or whatever, but in the first, they weren't Christians, but the first Jesus followers' understanding of who they were and what they were doing in the world. So let let me show you a couple examples. Notice this from a guy named Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says, we proclaim Christ crucified. What's your message, Paul? We announce, proclaim Christ, Jesus, crucified. Notice in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, it's important to note, when Paul wrote the phrase, Jesus Christ, like he wasn't saying, there's a guy named Jesus, last name Christ. Are you with me? Christ is not his last name. Um, Christ is a title. It comes from, the Greek word Christ comes from the Hebrew word Messiah. It essentially means anointed one. In the Jewish tradition, the anointed one typically was the Jewish king. Right? And it's used of other people sometimes in the Hebrew scriptures. There was one foreign emperor, uh, it was used, Persian emperor, it was used of once that he was, the, he was a messiah for Israel. 
Um, but this idea that Jesus, maybe like Jesus the anointed one. I, I resolved to know nothing when I was with you except Jesus the anointed one, the king, and this Jesus the anointed one, the king, crucified. If you were going to create a bumper sticker for Paul's message in his uh, seven genuine letters, if you were to try to distill it down, you would get a couple of bumper stickers. And one of the big ones would be Christ crucified. That's the bumper sticker. If you were to ask Paul, elevator pitch, what's your message? Christ crucified. And for people who were reading Paul's words, people who were engaging with Paul in real time, it seems like those two words, Christ crucified, meant, they, they, like they got the content of it. They understood what he was talking about. And it's interesting that this would be a thing that Paul and early Jesus, like it's, it's noted that early Jesus communities talked about the cross and they used the cross as a symbol. Now, to give you perspective, it would be like today us wearing an electric chair around our necks. How many of you, if you saw somebody out wearing an electric chair pendant around their neck, you would go, that person's a little odd. They're making some fashion choices and some life choices with that. And yet, and yet, for the first Christians, this became such a powerful symbol. And the meaning of it was so powerful. They began to adopt it, and they began to say things like, I can only talk about this. Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the king, and him crucified. The reason that's so strange is because Jesus was executed by Rome. Jesus was executed by the dominant world power of his day. It would be like if, if we were to bring all this to the modern world, Jesus would have been executed by the United States, right? Like the dominant world power. And crucifixions weren't something that happened to, well, they happened a lot. Romans did them a lot, but they didn't happen for just any reason. There's a speech. Like, you wouldn't be crucified generally for stealing something. Right? You, you wouldn't be crucified for like, breaking the speed limit. The people who were crucified, they were crucified because they needed to have a point made about who they were and what they were doing in the world. Some scholars have called crucifixion public terrorism. Because the way it would work is you would crucify somebody, and you would often do it by a busy roadway so that people coming in and going out of town would pass by. And there are historical records of, during some uprisings, the Romans in Israel crucifying up to 2,000 people at one time. The historian Josephus says that they were actually, they had more bodies than crosses. And so you would line them up on the road so the people coming in and out would get the message. If you resist the empire, because that's what got you crucified... You resist the empire, you die a tortured death on a Roman cross. And the Romans didn't invent, invent crucifixion, but they really, uh, it's a terrible way to use the word probably, but they really perfected it. They got it down to an art and a science. They turned death and torture into a science. They knew exactly how to cause suffering. And Paul says, when we talk about Jesus, you know what we want to remember? Jesus crucified. Seems, am I the only one who thinks that's odd? Like, uh, why not say Jesus, the miracle worker? Jesus, the dead raiser? Jesus, the demon caster outer? <laughs> Jesus, the really good winemaker? <laughs> Jesus, executed by the empire in a humiliating fashion. 
doesn't seem that's, that's not where the brag goes. And yet that's exactly where Paul takes it. Listen to him in Galatians. This takes it up a notch. May I never boast of anything. And Paul's this, I mean, if you read the rest of his letters, he's an educated guy, and he actually does boast about a lot of other stuff. Um, he's kind of lying to us on this one a little bit. Like, he, he boasts a lot. But in this letter, may I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May I never brag, may I never boast, may I never, like, if there's anything in my, my plus column, may it be this, the cross of Jesus, through which I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. How many of you have been warned to watch out for the world in Christian circles? <laughs> the world is gonna get you. And, and, and how many of you, like me, were raised with a little bit of hostility toward the world? How many of you live in the world? <laughs> now, here's the problem. We have interpret, interpreted for years the idea of the world to mean people who aren't Christians, right? Watch out for the world, i.e. people who don't believe like us. Watch out for the world, i.e. people who don't hold our doctrinal commitments. Watch out for the world, i.e. people who know how to have fun and seem to enjoy their lives. Um, like, watch out for the world. But here's what's interesting. The world, it's the word cosmos in Greek. Does that word sound familiar at all? Yeah, it's cosmos just said differently. Cosmos. Um, and here's what it means. It, it can mean order. It can mean arrangement. It can mean the universe. But often, uh, when we find it used like this in Paul, think of the word system. Don't think of individual people who don't believe like you, think like you, act like you. Think of system. It, it, like, read it like this. Man never boasts of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the system has been crucified to me, and I to the system. May I never boast except through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, through whose cross, I have been crucified to the way the world works. The way the world works is a lot bigger than your neighbor who doesn't go to church. And your neighbor who doesn't go to church actually might be a, probably is, a better human being than lots of people who go to church. Right? We've, we've sort of created this dichotomy. You either go to church and you're a good person or you don't go to church and you're... No, no, no. And, and that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about the cross for him is a way of dying to a certain way of the world working. It's dying to a certain system. It's dying to a system that uses power over other people. It's dying to a system that sees other people as commodities and products to be gobbled up. Like, we have a, we have a category called human resources, right? Like, it's Paul's saying, like, I, I no longer want to see humans as resources that feed a machine. The cross of Jesus is where, for Paul, this experience causes him to think, I no longer want to participate in the world as it works. I want to participate in a countercultural, different sort of world-making movement. And for Paul, the way he saw that coming about was something tied to the experience of Jesus, specifically the way Jesus dies. And so what I want to do is I want to give, like, why did Jesus die? That's the question. I want to give two responses. Um, and I want to give a historical response, and I want to give a theological response. Because the historical response comes before the theological response. Before anybody asks, what does Jesus' death mean, Jesus died. Are you with me? Chicken, egg. Definitely egg. Right? Jesus died, and then people had to start going, what does that actually mean for us? And here's what I've become convinced of. 
if we cannot, uh, if we don't have a way to explain the death of Jesus historically, because for me growing up, the death of Jesus was never a historical event. It was always a theological event. I don't mean that it didn't happen. I just mean that we never asked why it happened. We knew why it happened. Because people were sinners and God had to kill Jesus to love us again, to accept us again. To... But do you think that's what the Romans were thinking? Y'all, we don't want to kill this guy. But God said sins of the world have to be paid for somehow, so let's take him out there. I promise you, Rome had zero hesitation. And they did not kill Jesus because he had to die for the sins of the world. The Roman Empire executed Jesus because he led a resistance movement against the Roman Empire. He led a resistance movement. I've become more and more convinced that Jesus' movement was way more resistant to the empire than we ever dare imagine. Rome did not crucify people for being cranky. They crucified people for saying, there is another kingdom, there is another order, there is another way the world should be run, and we are advocating, we are starting in, we are starting now the way we want the world to be run. I think that's what Jesus actually did. I think that's what Jesus did. I think Jesus was leading a movement that irritated Rome religiously, maybe, but much more so politically and economically. Let me give you an example. Anytime Jesus is asked about money, what does he say? My paraphrase. I don't know. Don't have any. <laughs> Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? I don't know. I don't care that stuff. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, Jesus is opting out of everything. And he's saying, here's how we're going to beat the empire. We're not going to beat them with swords. They have way more of those. We're not going to beat them with strategy. They're way better at strategy. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go over to this tax collector's house. We're going to throw a party. And at the party, we're going to have everybody come and hang out. And there are going to be people in the room you would not believe these people in this room. There are going to be pure people and impure people. They're going to be men and women. They're going to be rich and poor. There's going to be people who are enslaved, and they're going to be people who are free, and they're going to get together in the same space, and they're going to take the same food, and they're going to thank God for it, and they're going to eat it. And then if somebody has trouble, if somebody can't pay their rent, somebody else is going to help pay their rent because nobody should go without having their rent paid. If somebody doesn't have enough food to eat, then we're going to send food. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus is starting a movement where he says, let's starve the beast. Let's stop playing. How, how, do, we, how do we get a better version of the empire? Wrong question. How do we subvert the empire so that we no longer have empires that are harming people? I think we've lived long enough in this world to see that even pretty decent, by history standards, empires still cause a lot of carnage and destruction in the world. Right? And so Jesus leads this movement. And if we need more proof that... that this is actually a political, economic thing, maybe even more than a religious thing. Now, to understand the ancient world, they couldn't separate those things out like we do. We'll say, well, listen, you handle religion, then we'll put economics and politics over here. Let's not. They understood in the ancient world, everything actually goes together, and it's inseparable. Because how you think the world should be run may be informed by your religious belief, but that's politics. And the minute you start talking politics, you're going to have to ask, what do we do with the money? So it's this one big thing. Listen to this from Mark 15, the earliest account of Jesus' death. It was 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right, one on his left. Um, the translation I grew up with, King James, uh, it was two thieves. Anybody else grow up with thieves on the cross? 
Um, here's what's really fascinating. It's not even close to what that word means. Um, the word actually in Greek is the word lestes, and it means something more like insurrectionist. Somebody who had violently participated in an uprising against the empire. Jesus is being crucified with two violent revolutionaries. Do you see the image here? Jesus is a non-violent revolutionary. He is leading a non-violent resistance movement. Essentially, Jesus' death, he's executed for treason against the Roman Empire for refusing to say, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus dies historically because he is putting forth a different vision for the world. And as he shares this different vision for the world, the empire listens to it, and they say, actually, the way it is works really well for us. So we're going to say, no, we pass. And the empire's no to Jesus looked like the cross. It was the world, the system, saying, we have a system that works really well for us, don't mess with it, or this is what happens to you. So historically, the death of Jesus is about Jesus' resistance and his movement's resistance to the Roman Empire, nonviolent, that became so threatening to the empire that they actually had to kill him for it. They had to get him out of the way. It worked really well for them, um, by the way, because three days later, people were going, hey, I don't know, I don't think he's dead. I don't know what happened. But that's the plan. we got to get rid of Jesus. We have to say no to the message of Jesus. So historically, before you put any theology on the cross, the cross was Jesus leading a movement, an alternative movement to the Roman Empire, and they kill him for it. And yet somehow, out of that painful, bloody death, something emerged, and it led people to ask the question, okay, Jesus was crucified, but what does it mean? And that's where theology comes into play. And it wasn't like 200 years later. It was very early on, Jesus' followers started asking the question, what does his death mean? And they couldn't settle on an answer. It seems like it was, they, they were grappling. So if you've ever read, how many of you have ever read the New Testament? You've read the letters of Paul. When you stop trying to pretend everything in the Bible agrees with everything else in the Bible, it really becomes fascinating that Paul has, if Paul writes four books, he has 15 atonement theories. Atonement is like how the cross works, right? Paul doesn't ever settle on one. It's almost like Paul says, yeah, yeah, here's what the cross means, and he explains it. And then he's writing to somebody else, and they're going, we don't get it. He's like, oh, forget that. Here's, here's what the cross means, right? It's, it's almost like instead of writing a systematic theology, Paul is building the plane as he flies it and trying to figure out the death of Jesus. I don't know what happened. I know that there was a human being who was nailed to and died on a Roman cross, and I know that our experience of that human being led us to now have to ask this question, what did it mean? Because it wasn't meaningless. It was deeply meaningful. I think you can make the argument, the two things that shaped the early layer of what became Christianity was the death of Jesus and the Easter experience. And it was the Easter experience, which we could have so much fun talking about. Um, The Easter experience led them to go back and say, okay, what does the cross actually mean? And when they began trying to describe it, of course they used language they were familiar with. They were familiar with language of temple and sacrifice. And so they, at times, would talk about the death of Jesus in the language of temple and sacrifice. And then we come along and literalize it. People who don't understand 
their particular perspective world. People who, frankly, most of us have been raised and taught a version of Judaism that is deeply anti-Semitic. Right? We've, how many of you have ever been told that the Jewish faith is a religion of works and Christianity is a religion of grace? That only works if you know nothing about Judaism and if you've never read the Hebrew Scriptures. Because in the Hebrew Scriptures, you find the same God of grace that you find in the New Testament through Jesus. Jesus actually taps in to a tradition called the prophetic tradition where um, in his particular stream of it, they see God as deeply grace, gracious and kind and compassionate, and they also see God as being deeply concerned about the oppression and suffering of people in the world. So even when they talked about Jesus as a sacrifice, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, sacrifice was never done in place of someone else. It was never that you took this thing to the temple and offered it in place of you. It was most often you take this and you offer it at the temple, and then you take part of it, the priest gets some of it, then you take part of it and you have a meal in the temple in the presence of God, which is like a peace meal. All right? It was never about taking someone else's place. And actually that understanding of the cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus, that God sent Jesus to die in my place, literally in my place, did not emerge until almost a thousand years really within, in, into Christian history. In a, in a medieval world that was built around the feudal system and honor and shame. There's a great line. Remember Dave Bazan, who I mentioned a few weeks ago? He has a great line in one of his songs that says, in what medieval kingdom does justice work this way? And so many of us have had our theology trapped in the Middle Ages. And it's shaped how we see God and how we understand the death of Jesus. And it's created us and left us with a God who is really kind of monstrous. A God who needs blood to be spilled to feel compassion. A God who needs someone to die in order to forgive someone else. That is not the God I see in the story of Jesus. I do not see a God in the story of Jesus who needs to be convinced about anything when it comes to us. God does not need to be convinced to love you. God does not need to be convinced to extend grace, mercy, compassion, forgiveness, liberation, wholeness, whatever you need. God does not have to be convinced or begged to give it to you. That is not the God of Jesus. The God of Jesus is the God who says, well, look, you see, you see the flowers, how they grow? and they, yeah, that's, that's how I feel about you. That's how I feel about you. I don't have to be convinced to love you. And we have concocted atonement theories, right, trying to make sense of the cross that end up making God look more like a feudal lord or an abusive parent than the God we meet in Jesus of Nazareth. So I want to say it again just because we've been, it's been said to us so many times. God does not need to be appeased. Not by you, not by me, not by Jesus. God was never cranky to begin with. So what does the cross mean theologically? I think we say a couple things. First, I think Easter means this. That the God who was, the Jesus who was rejected by Rome on Friday has been vindicated by God on Sunday. To put it another way, if the cross was Rome's no, the resurrection, Easter, is God's yes. It's God saying, this is how the world needs to be run. 
People caring for one another, people sharing their resources with one another, people caring about the last as much as they care about the first, people willing to risk everything in order to bring justice and healing and hope to the world, that's what the world should look like. It's God throwing God's lot in with Jesus and saying, this, this is my vision, this is my kingdom. Whatever Rome's doing is tearing the world apart. We need more of this. And I think that's what the cross means theologically. And so I'll say a couple more things. One, uh, it just these are not exhaustive meanings, but another. Jesus quite literally dies because of sin. Now, I was growing up and taught that every sin I ever committed put Jesus on the cross. Anybody else have that same talk when you? How in the world do we not end up, if that's true, how do we not just carry guilt and shame forever? Right? It's the, it's the divine equivalent of God going, look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. Jesus was a nice guy. He stood for the right things. And look what you made me do. You're so bad. You're so terrible. Look what you made me do. I'm about to start singing a Taylor Swift song. So I need to just like hit pause on that real quick. Look what you made me do. Like, look what you made me do. Like, this is what God, is this what God is ultimately like? Now, remember, if you were with us since the beginning of this series, we talked about human sin if we have an original sin, it isn't eating fruit while naked in a garden. What happens after that Eden moment is the first murder. And the word sin, the very first mention in the Bible, is connected to that first murder. And so we talked about what if sin isn't just the little stuff we do. What, what if we're talking about human sin? What if it's violence? And violence killed Jesus. Human violence nailed Jesus to the cross. Human violence brought suffering, pain, and torture to the human body of Jesus. And what the cross exposes is the absolute bankruptcy of violence to solve anything. You know what I think we're seeing on our televisions right now this week? And if we can just be honest, as an American, I'm usually watching our tanks roll in somewhere. And so when you're watching somebody else's and you realize how ridiculous this is and how this will never, ever solve any of the problems of the world and, and, and blowing up buildings and bombing, it will never, like when you look at this happening on your TV screen, it's like this will never, ever fix the problem. I think that's what the cross exposes. It's sort of like what happens when somebody who's really, really powerful picks on somebody who doesn't have a lot of power, and they feel like, oh, look how awesome I am. No. You're not, it's not, you're not awesome. You're not cool. You're not strong. You're a bully. And the cross reveals the bullying of empire, what it does to people, how it can lead to suffering and pain and loss. In, in the death of Jesus of Nazareth, we see the absolute futility and bankruptcy of the way we try to solve our problems in the world. We see what fear gets you. We're afraid of that person. Grab a cross and some nails. Let's go outside of town and let's end it. That's what we see in the cross of Jesus. And yet somehow, and this is where people have gravitated at times, somehow what we also see in the cross is the depth of the love and grace and mercy of God. 
Not because in the cross God was somehow making us acceptable in a way that God couldn't make us acceptable without the death of Jesus. Did God need Jesus to die? Absolutely not. And yet in the death of Jesus, we see God's love on display in pretty powerful ways. One of those poignant moments from the cross is Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. Right? In a moment where it should be, if you're going to fight fire with fire, now's the time. If you're going to roast these folks, now's the time. And Jesus instead, Father, God, forgive them. In the cross, we do not see the wrath of God. In the cross, we see human wrath exposed. The cross is about human wrath and the divine response to human wrath, which is to meet it with love, mercy, compassion, and an invitation to be changed. And I think it's in the Gospel of Mark at the end. There's a Roman centurion who very likely was just nailing Jesus to the cross, who when Jesus dies, the Roman centurion looks up at the cross and says, that is surely God's son. And you have to understand that his boss already had the title. Caesar was called God's son. Do you see what's happening in the story of Mark? This Roman centurion is standing, looking at this beaten and bloodied and executed Jewish rabbi, peasant, and says, that's actually what true strength looks like. That is what true power looks like. And if you want to know the real problem right now in the, well, there's more than one real problem right now in the religious right in America, but if you want to know one of the real big problems is that they have forgotten that that is what strength looks like. That strength doesn't look like beating people up. It doesn't look like violence. It doesn't look like hate. It doesn't look like exclusion. It looks like somebody being broken open and poured out in love for the people around them, refusing to enact violence toward them, but instead being willing to even embrace their violence as it comes to them. That's what's happening in the cross. Jürgen Moltmann, theologian, says, when the crucified Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, the meaning is that this is God, and God is like this. This is what God is like. God is like the crucified Jesus. This is what strength looks like. This is what power under control looks like. One reason Christians end up using divisive la uh, divine language for Jesus, right? Christians started talking about Jesus in the divine terms is because of this, because when they saw this experience, the theological boxes they had could no longer contain it. I think we regularly need experiences, by the way, that our theological boxes cannot contain. Cross is not an act of divine violence. It is a picture of how the divine responds to our pain and our suffering. Instead of moving away from it and shaming us, the divine moves into it and embraces us. That's actually good news. And that's what we're called to imitate in the world, right? Jesus actually said to his disciples, you want to follow me? Grab your cross. Let's go. And I do not think he meant grab your cross, find the first person who doesn't live like you think they should and put them on it. I think he's saying if you want to follow me, that looks like embracing this sort of path an upside-down, inside-out understanding of what true strength, true power, true humanity actually looks like. James Cone, in his brilliant book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, he says it like this. The gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation, but a story about God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed. 
which led to his death on the cross. What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair. The cross is a paradoxical religious symbol because it inverts the world. Remember world system? It inverts the world's value system with the news that hope comes by way of defeat, that suffering and death do not have the last word, and the last shall be first, and the first last. The cross is not primarily a doctrinal category. It was a human experience of Jesus, which was so transforming that it led his disciples to embrace it. Embrace it. Instead of being ashamed of it and saying, our guy got crucified. They're saying, our guy got crucified. And in our guy's crucifixion, the very heart and mystery of God has been revealed to us in a way that we couldn't have seen it otherwise. That's why Paul said, I resolved to know nothing when I was with you, except for two things. Jesus Christ, not his last name, and him crucified. We're going to talk about the end times in a few weeks. Um, Nobody panic, we're fine. But there's this symbol. There's this thing. And people always say, Jesus came the first time like a lamb, and he's coming the next time like a what? Which means Jesus really didn't get it right the first time. He let people beat him up. But he's coming back with a commitment to make people bleed. And they take that from a text in the book of Revelation where the writer says, they're talking, I'm not going to get into all that because we don't have six hours. But there's this, despair. And this voice tells the author, do not despair. The lion of the tribe of Judah, i.e. Jesus, has overcome. And then sort of the camera pans, and the writer says, and then I looked. So this this is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I looked, and I saw a lamb that had been slain. I think the message is the lion has always been the lamb. True strength looks like a lamb slain, not a lion doing the slaying. And until we as Christians, as a tradition, can end up with a nonviolent understanding. Now, I know Jesus' death was very violent. But when I say a nonviolent understanding of the cross, meaning an explanation of the cross that doesn't turn God into a monster needing to kill people to make us right with God. Until we can come up with an understanding of the cross that doesn't turn uh, Jesus into somebody who was killed but now is coming back with a vengeance we will never truly understand the gospel because the gospel is the crucified. One 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 version of the gospel is the crucified Jesus on the other side did not change his mind about his work. That's the meaning. Jesus hasn't decided, oh, guess what? The first time, I thought we could talk this out. We were going to negotiate. And they didn't listen. And so next time we're bringing the full strength of the army of God. No, no, no. This is who God has always been. This is who Jesus has always been. And our calling is not just to behold the wondrous and survey the wondrous cross. Our calling is to pick up our own. And carrying your cross does not mean you're putting up with somebody who's annoying. That's called putting up with somebody who's annoying. (laughs) The cross is about dying to one way of being in the world and being raised to a completely different way of being. 
Embracing the cross is pushing back on destructive systems that are hell-bent on damaging and harming real people in the world and saying, I don't care how many Bible verses you have on this governor, that actually isn't the gospel. The gospel isn't how do we exclude more people. And we're willing to risk our reputation, uh, whatever we have to risk, we are willing to risk it to stand in solidarity. Jesus died standing in solidarity with those who were oppressed. Will we not do the same? Will we not risk everything standing in solidarity with those who are oppressed? Because when we begin to take that roll up, we have grabbed our cross and we are following the Jesus who went to Calvary. Are you with me? Let's pray.